Williams. I'm Ryan Sheffy. And this is our guest, Claire Marshall. Claire is with works with me at the Daughters of the American Revolution, and today she's going to talk to us about one of the women in history that actually had a lot to do with the American Revolution. So welcome, Claire. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm excited. So <laughs> I am too. She has a really great story, guys, and yeah, this is going to be a good one. So Brian, what do you have to say? <laughs> well, as always, welcome to the show. Thanks. Welcome to the audience. Thank you for sharing your part of your Sunday with us. Hope you're all well and healthy and safe. That's awesome. So we're going to jump right in. So, well, do you want to say a little bit about Claire and the, the DAR and what she does? And, oh, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Okay. So Claire is works under in genealogy and she is the assistant director of applications. So basically Claire is Okay, I work on the end where we're doing the intake, and Claire actually checks it and makes sure everything's okay and makes sure your information is correct. And if there's a problem, then she'll contact you and let you know that we need this, we need more information. Am I right so far? You're totally on point. <laughs> <laughs> make sure we need more information or something like that. Um, and then once that's done, it'll come back to me. And then once it comes back to me, I'm the person that then go ahead and helps post it and puts it through, gives you your national number, mails out your certificate, and voila, you are now a member of the DAR. Mm -hmm. So we work through that throughout the month, and then at the end of the month, we turn to crazy women. Yes, <laughs> that's very true. And, <laughs> and we go from there. But... um. As far as joining the DAR, do you have numbers on that? Like, how often do we go through all of that stuff? Um, in terms of, like, how many applications we yes. process on a monthly basis yeah. and things like that? Um, we're in the roughly, I think the last report I saw was in the thousands about month, maybe 1,500. It varies from month to month because it depends on how many applications we actually receive in the building that we can then process and right. get through and everything. I believe we verified a little over 14,000 applications last year alone, which was one of our highest years on record. Um, so it's a, it's a whole production. Um, and I guess I'll just put in a, a shameless plug here for the DAR. If anyone is interested in joining, please feel free to visit our website, www.dar.org. And there's a lot of information there. There's a whole section on just join and that will show you everything you need to know about how to join how to get in touch with local chapters, chapters. in your area there is a special like a special little option called the chapter locator where you can put in your zip code and right. it'll take you directly to a listing of all of the chapters in your area and how to contact them and get in touch with a registrar who can help you with your lineage that's right that's okay. right i had to do that <laughs> no we want you to do that we want you to do that it's, it's important because you know, Women's History Month focuses on all of the women, and these these women do so much. So can you tell us something about what they do throughout history, what they've done, and what they're doing now? Yeah, so in terms of female patriots in what we call established in our system in the GRS, which is the Genealogical Research System, um, Typically, you see two types of service performed by women. It's either furnishing supplies or paying a supply tax, so contributing in some sort of financial way to the support of the American cause of independence. Um, or you see uh, a lot, not a lot, but a decent amount of women were taken as prisoners of war. We categorize this kind of service as patriotic service. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you that we have only one female who participated in a military capacity during the Revolutionary War, um, and I can talk a little bit about that, but she's not my main focus today. Um, so it can be somewhat complicated to establish a female ancestor or patriot in our system, usually because of the fact that, you know, as a married woman, based on coverture laws in early colonial America, um, it was basically very difficult for a married woman 
to own property in her own right. Anything that she had, and basically her being, was sort of covered by that of her husband. So if you're a married woman during the Revolutionary War, you're not the one paying those taxes or furnishing those supplies. It is your husband who's doing that, and thus he gets the service. Now, if you're a widow, um, that's when we see a lot of female patriots have been established because their husband died either before the war or during, and then after his death, they're the ones providing those supplies or paying that tax, at which point they can then get service. Okay. So I'm curious, the women who were taken, were they taken as hostages or were they taken as prisoners of war? Prisoners of war. Um, but it kind of depends on the circumstance. Elizabeth here was absolutely a prisoner of war. Some people, some sources, I should say, will claim that it was a deliberate move by the British sort of in retaliation against her husband, mm -hmm. who is a prominent figure of the Revolutionary War. Um, those claims can't be 100% corroborated, though, based on the sources that we have available to us today. But uh, in her case, she was a prisoner of war. Because again, Donnie and I are doing our own research on our ancestor, Daniel Williams the second. Mm -hmm. The second. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what was really interesting to see is he made all of these provisional deeds. What was going to happen to his enslaved people in case? And he was in South. He was between South Carolina and, and his, North Carolina, and, which mm -hmm. was his ancestral one of his ancestral homes. Mm -hmm. So that whole period, he's going back and forth, and he's taking all of his enslaved people and mm -hmm. his family. From South Carolina, North Carolina, then back, and you can literally, and when you start plotting what he's doing mm -hmm. with where the British were attacking, mm -hmm. basically he was just trying to get his family and enslaved people out of the British hands, and they were literally just going back and back yeah. and forth over that border, and it just seemed chaotic. Yes, just absolute chaos. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it really is. He's the one that um, ends up owning the guy that I was telling you about, Moses Williams. Yeah. My grandfather, oh, yes. four-time mm -hmm. grandfather, yeah. 45 kids, mm -hmm. that crazy guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that's why we're doing so much work yeah. on him. That's our yeah. connection through okay. John Williams and uh, Kings Mountain. Yes, yeah. that's it. And, you know, I guess following on from what you were saying, I can really appreciate more what his wife, Luana Henderson, mm -hmm. was going through because he was out of the house. Pretty mm -hmm. much for that, for the most part. Wow, I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. so you can imagine yeah. that, you know, you can imagine them as a married couple sitting at the you know the dinner table, going, "Well, I've got to go fight in Kings Mountain, so you wow. you have you literally have to hold the fort, the kids, yep. the animals, the farm, everything. Yep. everything." And she clearly did and it. She clearly did. Yeah, you know, they kept everything together. But the onus of that fell on her, because like I yeah. said, he was off. He was out. <laughs> That's what it means. I guess when you're the mistress of the house, that's your job. But, um, and that's somewhat similar to what happened here with, with our friend Elizabeth, is that her husband Francis was a very prominent figure in New York. He was a very wealthy merchant in the years leading up to the war. Um, and then was, of course, you know, he was part of the early New York Provincial Congress. He was elected to Continental Congress in 1775. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. So a lot of the time, um, the family estate was in Long Island. So a lot of the time, he wasn't home. He was in Philadelphia or elsewhere. So um, Elizabeth was left to take care of everything. And by the time the war rolled around, she was probably in her 50s. Um, we don't really have concrete information about her date of birth, date of death, things like that. So what we do have is estimated based on available information. Some sources say that she was born around 1715. Our sources at the DAR, we've said 1725, and that's pretty much made up. <laughs> it's just we know that she was married probably in 1745, and one of her eldest sons, who actually one of the few that lived to adulthood, was born in 1750. So roughly based on that, we think, okay, if she was probably in her early 20s when she got married in 1745, so fine, 1725. Which are all very good points for people trying to do their, to do their research, because again, we don't necessarily have cut and dried years right. of birth. We right. don't always know. That's right. So yeah. you just try to try to acclimatize yourself or familiarize yourself when, when people of that generation were getting married for the first time, mm -hmm. when they were having their first child, 
and say, well, you know, somewhere between 18 to, you know, 20. Yeah. yeah. And that's where I get the ge geometry thing. I like math. So <laughs> good for you. I mean, <laughs> I do. I like math. And, and it reminded I can always say that one thing about genealogy, it reminded me of math because especially gene especially geometry, because I can remember in geometry how you had to prove proofs. And you oh, always had to have a hypothesis and you mm -hmm. had to, you know, do mm -hmm. certain things and you had to prove this angle. In order to prove this angle, you had to give a guesstimation first and then go through whether it was right or wrong. And mm -hmm. I'm like, that's what I'm doing with geology with genealogy. Mm -hmm. I have to prove it. I have to find my hypothesis write my hypothesis first and then figure out if it's right or wrong. So I always try to explain it to people like that, but if they don't know geology. But that's actually, I love that. That is such a great way to explain it because yeah. you have a lot of people that submit their applications to the DR and they might have, you know, maybe all they can find after a quick search is a family genealogy that was published in 2002 mm -hmm. and it just says, John Smith had five children and one was Martha. And it's like, okay, where is where this is information it? coming right. from? How do you know? How can we verify this? Right. And that's when you said, so I love that idea of having the hypothesis. Yeah. That's what I tell people to do with family genealogies. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them that you come across are, you know, they've got sources out the wazoo. They're so incredibly written. And I wish every single one of them was like that. But right. unfortunately, yeah. that's not the case. Right. So it's always a great place to start. Like, you can use that as your hypothesis. Right. And that's okay. what I tell people. I'm yeah. like, you have to be able to prove it. You have to understand that when you're doing genealogy, you need to know that there's a possibility that that oral history that you got is mm -hmm. going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And Grandma might be telling you something wrong because she really don't want to tell you the truth. Yep. Or, in the case of so many of our families, there's so many common family names. Yes. Like mm -hmm. Elizabeth Cox. Whether it's spelled C-O-X or C-O-C-K-E. -E. Right. There's a thousand of them. Yes. Yeah. And literally a thousand per generation. Okay, Exaggeration, <laughs> I know, but it's, it seems that way. Yeah. So it's easy to conflate two people, merge two people, confuse two people. Right. Remember what I was talking about William Holloway? I thought, if I see that name one more time... Well, you already know, I'd be ready to throw my computer out the window when I see Carrie Brunson. That name irritates my soul. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'd be ready to die when I see that. Because we have 1,003,400,000 Carrie Brunsons. Brunson. Every time we turn around, there's a Carrie Brunson. But seriously, <laughs> it's like every time someone had a daughter... Mm -hmm. Every one of them carry. Somebody. Yeah. So you could have five carries within the same family. In the same. Because every mm -hmm. sister or you know, every daughter is naming one of their one of their daughters carry. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a, before you get into Elizabeth Lewis, I have one one other question for you. And are you getting the sense oh, the question's actually gone out of my head. <laughs> but I have to do with with um with, with movements of people. Carry on. It'll it will come back to me. <laughs> It's so killing because it, it was a really good question. Uh, <laughs> you want to go into this? Oh. Okay, go ahead. Um, do you get a sense that the British had a short list of families that they wanted to specifically target, that they thought if we can capture these people would really demoralize the, the patriots? So, yes, but I hesitate to almost say hmm. yes because it's one of those things that from my personal research and feeling, yes, I do feel that, but... Can I actually corroborate that someone had sent down orders saying, you know what, these five guys who signed the Declaration of Independence, I want you to get them. So, I mean, because, of course, signing the Declaration of Independence was considered an act of treason. Mm -hmm. So it would stand to reason that anyone who had signed that document would be sort of marked or have a, I don't want to say a bounty on their head, but if that makes sense, yeah. that sort of like, okay, well, you chose to sign this document, and now instead of, you know, trying you for treason, which is sort of what typically happened based on the rules of war, I think the British opted more for just, we're just gonna shoot you when we see you, or hang you, or is in the case of what happened to Francis Lewis, Elizabeth's husband, just completely raise your estate, destroy everything, steal about, I think, in one of his letters, um, after the war, he mentions that he was lost about 12,000 pounds 
after the British destroyed his estate. So um, you could make the case that people were deliberately targeted because of their patriotic sentiment. Whether or not you could prove that that was the reason they were specifically targeted or if they were specifically targeted, that would be... Because that's yeah. something that I'm trying to research about Pierce Butler, Pierce Major Pierce Butler of uh, South Carolina and Georgia, because he had estates in both in both places, mm-hmm. where the British in both in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 sailed up outside the island where he had his massive plantations and basically just took hundreds of enslaved people and, and took them up to Canada. Mm. But it seemed deliberate. They're mm-hmm. like, all right. You've been shot. You've been spouting your mouth off, saying all this anti-British stuff. You're a very high-profile person. You were a high-profile revolutionary. Mm-hmm. So guess what? While you're in Philadelphia, we're just gonna sail our man of war ship, dock it outside your plantation, and just tell all of your enslaved people, all of you want to come, mm-hmm. come with us, because we know that's gonna hurt you. Right. We can't get you, but, but we can destroy as much of your property as we can get our hands on, and we'll wow. take the, and we'll take the rest. Yeah. Which is very similar to what happened to Francis. They pulled a ship of war right outside because the their estate was right on the water there and just started firing cannons at the house sometime in September of 76. We don't know the exact date. Um, but, I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting story and I think it, it would make sense to make that claim that there were prominent figures of the Revolutionary War who... It is, like I believe you said, demoralizing or, yeah, I think that's a great word for it. Um, Just because, you know, that's what you get kind of thing. And in particular, what I thought was interesting with Francis is um, he was actually one of the merchants who was supplying a lot of supplies and food to men in Massachusetts in New York during the French and Indian War and was actually taken prisoner for quite some time, I believe imprisonment for about two years both in Montreal and then over into Paris Um, but the British after at the close of the war and once he was finally released recognized that he was a valuable asset to the British Empire Mm -hmm. given the amount of money that he had and the many different areas that he was involved in terms of shipping Um, and so he was actually financially compensated which and I'm sorry, financially compensated, but also given land in the New York colony, which is what he then used to purchase that estate in Long Island. And then with the Stamp Act and everything, sort of turned his back on the British. So I have always kind of like wondered if the reason that he was targeted is because they were like, hey, we gave you land after we negotiated your release. And then you turned around and started supporting the Americans. So, you know, not really a loyal subject. So... Yeah. So without further ado, if you would like to introduce Elizabeth, Elizabeth Lewis. Yeah. So Elizabeth Lewis um, was the wife of Francis Lewis. Uh, her maiden name was Ainsley. She was the younger sister of Edward Ainsley, who was one of Francis's partners in an import-export firm that he established in New York City. So we talked a little bit about her date of birth and how we don't really have a lot of information on that. Um, so the reason I started looking into her was in the March of 2018 publication for the DAR's American Spirit magazine, we did publish an article on Elizabeth Ainsley Lewis. Um, and I was asked by our director at the time to do a little fact checking for it and to corroborate the claim of whether or not she had been specifically targeted because of her husband's prominence in the Revolutionary War. Um, so when the British invaded Long Island in August of 76, uh, that's where lore starts to indicate that like, oh, word got around that this guy Francis Lewis, his estate is right here. So maybe we'll just go and get that guy. So we know that sometime in September of 1776, the British showed up one night. It was, I believe under, it was a party of soldiers sent commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Birch, who were authorized to basically go and destroy the estate. Some authors claim that part of their marching orders were to also then take Elizabeth as prisoner, or whether or not that just happened as part of the circumstance because Francis wasn't there, the next best thing is, okay, well, we'll take your wife. So um, 
Before I get into the exact events of that day, uh, a lot of, I just want to talk a little bit about where my information is coming from. Yeah. So her great granddaughter, uh, Julia Delafield, in 1877 published a biography of her mother. It was a, or grandmother, I'm sorry, great grandmother. Uh, so it was a biography of Francis Lewis and Morgan Lewis. Francis Lewis, of course, Elizabeth's husband. Morgan Lewis was their eldest son, who was the grandfather of the author. Um, and she always described Elizabeth as being very sweet-tempered, well-educated, very calm, loving wife. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes of her, which I am going to read out because this is directly from Julia's text is go. Um, so this is before the Revolutionary War took place. Mm -hmm. She goes, one night, Mrs. Lewis was aroused by a noise. In the corner of the room, she saw a man dressed in black. She sat up, raised a loaded pistol ready at her side and called, who's there? No answer. Speak or I fire. No answer. She fired. When a light was procured, a hole in her black dress showed that a steady hand had aimed the weapon. Hey, ma'am. So. Hey, ma'am. I feel like that gives us a lot of information about who she was as a person. Yes. Because she woke up in the middle. Now, granted, she was looking at a dress and not an actual. Little paranoid. Little paranoid. <laughs> but she had a loaded pistol next to her bed and she knew how to use it. Yes, she, she did. was a good shot. So but let me tell you who she reminded me of. NCIS, Ziva DeVee oh, slept with a gun. That's what, so, that's what she reminded me of. That was good. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like it's that. It's a good one. And it also reminds me of, I'm not going to name names, but a newspaper clipping that we read from Edgefield oh, where wow. we have a family member. I think it was the 1920s. 1920s. Had a bit of a domestic issue with her, with her husband, uh -huh. a, par a partner at the time. Yeah. She was fearful of her life. He comes rolling up the, the driveway. She goes up to the, this is a second story window. Okay. With a rifle or a, shock, a shotgun. shotgun. She got him. In his in car. In his car. In his oh. car. She from the second story from the window. Second That's impressive. Yeah. She was also an excellent shot. She was shot. an excellent shot. We, we, affect, we affectionately refer to her as the Black Annie Oakley. Of yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, yes. I like that. Yes, I, like that. I, I did too. I was like, I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> I need to be like you when I grow up. So, <laughs> but yes, that that's awesome. That so she's awesome a little story. paranoid, yeah. but yeah, she she did that. Yeah, and I think it speaks to her character too that instead of screaming for help, she stood her ground, mm -hmm. and that does kind of tie into another little story. Of, of, this is related by Julia Delafield, the author. So um, we skip to when the British have invaded Long Island. There is a manhunt for Francis, but Francis is away in Philadelphia. Elizabeth is at home taking care of the house. Now, all of her children at this point are older and grown, so it's just her um, and her servants and whatnot. So the British show up, and a, they bring a ship of war around and just start blasting the house. So this is taken directly from the text. As the soldiers advanced on one side, a ship of war from the other fired upon the house. There was nothing to be done. Mrs. Lewis looked calmly on. A shot from the vessel struck the board on which she stood. One of her women called out, run, mistress, run. She replied, another shot is not likely to strike the same spot and did not change her place. Oh, so I she had balls. Really, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can I say those British men of war ships, they are not small. They are huge. They're yeah. Well, they're built to be intimidating. Yes. So you literally have a bank of cannons, probably about anything from a dozen to 16, because it was on more than one level, all pointed at your house. She, and she stood there. And she stood there. She's like, oh, it's not coming again, so I'm you not tripping. If I move, I'm going to get hit. Exactly. That's what she was saying. If I move, I'm going to get hit. So right here. I'm going to stay right here. It's good. <laughs> Like, wow. lesser, lesser people would have run screaming into the night. And I mean, granted, she was already in her 50s or 60s, roughly around that age. Mm -hmm. And apparently some sources do say she was in ill health already at that point in her life. But she just stood there. Wow. And I think like that just shows, that speaks to her courage, which I think in turn, courage and strength of character, which I think is what 
helped her get through the next several months, which is sort of what happens here as of this night. Wow. Um, so I have one more little anecdote here. Um, so the soldiers come in. The house is being destroyed. They're destroying everything. Furniture, papers, books. Everything's all gone. And one of the soldiers, this is another story according to her great-granddaughter, one of the soldiers jumped down and started trying to tear the buckles off her shoes because he thought they were gold. And in fact, they were what I think they call it pinchbeck, which is just like, it's like zinc or copper or something like okay. that, a metal alloy that looks like gold but isn't actually gold. And so this guy starts trying to tear off the buckles of her shoes. And she just calmly tells him, all is not gold that glitters. So like, your house is burning to the ground. There are soldiers everywhere. Everything's being destroyed. Someone is literally trying to take the shoes off your feet. And she has the time to kind of like reprimand him. Like, okay, buddy. Like, watch out what you're doing here. You need to calm down just a little bit. I'm gonna need you to take a chill pill for yeah. a second. <laughs> gather yourself and understand that all the it's just not it's not all anything that glitter it ain't always gold son mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. calm down yeah i love and her i love her <laughs> yeah so she's she's a great character um she is. of history for how she stood up for herself in these moments um wow. it would be nice if we had an alternate source to be able to corroborate this because this I think it still is lore. This is written down by her great-granddaughter, you know, who says that all of these stories were told to her by her grandfather, who was Elizabeth's second son. son. Okay. So there is some truth to it. Um, and so at this point, Elizabeth is taken prisoner uh, and she's held in Manhattan for a lengthy period of time. The exact amount of time is difficult to determine. So her great-granddaughter said it was around three months um, Francis's actual, his correspondence during and after the war did seem to indicate that while she may have been released after several months, she was still detained in New York and couldn't leave. So it looks like her period of detention mm -hmm. was about eight months, starting in September of 1776. So she was basically jailed for eight months. Jail, at least she was jailed, I think, at least for three to four months, maybe a little bit longer. Sources kind of differ, so it's hard to know exactly how much time she was physically in prison. Um, and a lot of the information that we do get and where her service comes from, her service for the DAR, is actually through George Washington's correspondence during the war because he was the one who negotiated her release from prison. Yeah, actually, the picture right here, this is a medal that the DAR awards, um, and that is... Elizabeth Ainsley there at the bars um, of the window with her shackles on. And the stories go that she was not allowed a change of clothing. She was not allowed to communicate with anyone outside of prison. Um, she was given the same food that all prisoners were given, which from sort of the rules of war and from what I understand of that time, generally speaking, more prominent figures would have received better treatment. Because I was going to ask, just to be clear, she wasn't under house arrest. No, she, she was wasn't busy. stationed with a gut you know, with a British general or a major. She was in prison. Literally she in was prison. in prison, yes. Um, and so wow. that's, I think, the best thing that we have to corroborate the claim that her treatment was deliberate because of her husband's position. Mm -hmm. um, because sort of why else would an elderly woman the wife of a prominent figure, be treated in such a harsh way. Um, and George Washington himself, uh, a lot of his correspondence with General Howe, uh, was with General Howe while they were negotiating the release of Mrs. Lewis and a few other wives who'd been taken prisoner of other prominent men. So were those other wives treated the same as she was, or was she treated worse? So I couldn't quite answer you that. I can tell you that we did not treat the wives of British soldiers in the same way because Washington himself, um, basically the way it worked to get Elizabeth's release is that Washington specifically detained the wives of two prominent British, I can't remember exactly what their position were, but British soldiers um, and held them from entering New York City until Elizabeth's release could be secured. And I know in one of Washington's letters, he writes to General Howe saying, look, okay, 
we don't treat our prisoners of war like this, but if you guys are going to continue treating your prisoners of war like this, we have no option but to do the same. And I will detain these two women until Mrs. Lewis can be released. And of course, in one of those letters, he does mention the fact that he is going to allow these two women that he's held to bring in changes of clothes and things like that, at which point, because of that, Elizabeth is finally allowed a change of clothing. There was a servant who was allowed to come into New York to provide her with that, and as the story goes, to give her some bread. And for people who can't quite envision it, prisons in this time period were hell holes. They were just beyond squalid. Yes. I mean, disease running rampant, no food or moldy food or no... You know, if you're in New York in the winter, no heat, no insulation on these things. So, I mean, she became seriously ill. And if that depict that picture is any depiction, she wasn't even held with just women. She, no, because there was it men in there. Yes. Yeah. So, no privacy, no, you know, nothing. Yeah. And I no mean, protection. No protection. <laughs> I mean, yeah. nothing. Nothing. She didn't even have her gun to shoot him if necessary. Because <laughs> she could have protected herself. I mean, as as is evident, she, like, she could have protected herself. Her. But yeah. wow. Um, so yeah, and I believe I read somewhere that um, about ten thousand American prisoners of war died of neglect during the Revolutionary War. Um, and so I think it speaks to her strength of character that she did manage to survive. Um, she never fully recovered, though. She spent most of it... Um, it sounds like she contracted tuberculosis while in prison. Consumption, as it was called. Mm-hmm. And um, she basically spent the remaining two-odd year, two-some-odd years of her life bedridden and seriously ill. Oh. Um, and died sometime after March of 1779. She was alive to witness her son Morgan's marriage, which occurred, I think, the 2nd of March, 1779. Mm-hmm. So that's the last recorded event that we have of her. But So how, how did you guys prove... So again, when we do what we do, you have someone who comes in and says, I'm, I'm a descendant of Elizabeth Lewis. Mm-hmm. How are you guys proving her? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, so... Um, Through Elizabeth herself, we only have one child established. And as you know, back in the day, we did not require proof of your lineage and things like that. Um, So Elizabeth was first established, I believe, in 1924 was when the first application came in through her. So we didn't actually ask for any proof of anything. However, through her husband, who's also a patriot in our system, there have been more recent children established. And they were established through sort of the same kinds of documentation that you would see with any other patriot. Um, The child, Morgan, um, through Francis was established um, using his obituary because Morgan himself was a prominent figure in New York. So um, his obituary, we're using marriage records, land records, probate records in particular. Um, So it's nothing special, so to speak. But um, in terms of her service, sort of that, that prisoner of war status, the patriotic service that she's been given in our system was verified using George Washington's papers Uh, during the Revolutionary War. Um, And that's actually... One of the biggest problems that we have with female patriots um, is how to prove their service. Now, not every instance is is going to be an Elizabeth Lewis scenario where George Washington himself is describing the link, you know, their imprisonment and all of the details that we can use to prove service. Um, It is somewhat easier when you have a simpler service, such as furnishing supplies or paying a supply tax because then you have that information on you know in one of our sources which is you know the Virginia Revolutionary War public claims you can see that someone you know there's a receipt of payment to a specific person for this thing on this day so you can see that Elizabeth Smith was paid 50 pounds for eight bushels of wheat or something like that and that right there that counts as service so it's a little bit easier to corroborate that I'm not sure if it's the same form. There's forms that I've seen on full three where people are, they didn't, they weren't combatants, 
but they provided material aid, like cows and corn and, and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of the form though, but you can actually pull out quite a bit of information from those. Oh yeah. Is that the same form that you're talking about? Um, Where people so would, at, at the, after the end of the revolution, they basically put in kind of their receipts going, well, if we mm -hmm. can get reimbursed for our aid to the, to the Continental Army, that would be great. Yeah, and those absolutely do exist. We do have, um, so, would you say South Carolina? Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. There's the, is it the stub entry indents? Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that is one of our standard sources that we use, which okay. is, I always mess up the full name. I think it's the stub entry indents to Revolutionary War claims or something, <laughs> something like that. It's cool. like, That's close. It's, yeah. That's close. <laughs> um, and so those are receipts of payment, exactly. Yeah. So it kind of depending on where you were residing. Um, I know in New Jersey, there are also Revolutionary War single slips where people mm -hmm. submitted claims after the war was over and say, hey, the British burned my house. Can I get a little financial compensation? Um, so you do have, you can get service from that, in particular as a female patriot. Of course, your husband would have had to have kicked it in order for you to get that service. Um, I think in some rare cases, we might have had it where you might have a divorce or something like that, where a woman's legal status then sort of reverts back to being what they call, because there's like... In, you know, coverture laws in colonial America, there's what they call the femme sole and the femme couvert. So, like, femme sole means, like, a single woman, and then femme couvert is, like, covered. So, covered under her husband. So, that's sort of, like, you know, as a femme couvert, you did not have the right to buy land in your own right. You did not have the right to inherit land in your own right. You know, anything that you had went to your husband. Wow. So, we're covering women's history and um, suffrage right now. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. speaking of that, if any of you have female ancestors in the colonial period who were in Maryland, Maryland colonial women during this period specifically had the right to vote. Ended up being taken away from them, but there is, in the Maryland archives, you can actually see the petitions and those kind, those kind of voting records, which is really, really amazing. Yeah. So you think yeah. that this is what kind of sparked them? Like, I want my voting rights back. Like what we were just talking about. Yeah, okay, everybody's gone off the war, so I have to know how to do this. And now that everybody's back, okay, now you can go back and be in barefoot and pregnant again. And be like, but I don't want to be barefoot and pregnant yeah. anymore. Mm -hmm. Hard pass. I, I want to do this. <laughs> I want to do this. And I don't want to not vote anymore. I mm -hmm. want to vote. Mm -hmm. So that could have sparked everything that we're talking about right now. And the other place I've seen women mentioned is when their husbands filed for their pensions, obviously the surviving husbands mm -hmm. who came back, filed for their pensions. Oh, while I was away fighting at Yorktown, you know, the British attacked my farm and my wife did this. Mm -hmm. Kind of a thing. Wow. I don't, yeah. I don't think that, well, no, actually, that, I would imagine that getting something like that, even if it wasn't firsthand, would that be qualifying for the... Yeah, it not. would depend. It's kind of a case-by-case -case basis with something like that. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to just blanket say yes, because mm -hmm. it's sort of like, yes, he's making that claim in his pension, but that's maybe 40 years later. So right. do we have a more contemporary source that could corroborate that? Did he, you know, petition the General Assembly at, you know, in 1785? Or did he submit some sort of claim like what we were talking about closer to the end of the Revolutionary War to say, hey, the British stole five of my horses. Can I get compensated for that? So, like I said, it would depend on what we actually got in terms of proof. Because, again, what makes Elizabeth's story really interesting on another level for me is it's one of the few stories we actually have that I've seen. I'm not saying that there's not more out there where, you know, a woman was actually actively involved, you know, taking prison, taking prisoner. Mm -hmm. Most of the accounts I get are secondhand accounts or mm -hmm. indirect accounts. Like, like I was right. saying, their husband might have written, oh, you know, while I was away fighting, my wife did this. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's what I like most about her story is because you can really track the service of prisoner of war, that patriotic service, through Washington's correspondence. Yeah. It took several letters over the course of several months between the Board of War, between Washington, to General Howe, to Francis Lewis, 
to organize this whole thing. So it's very well documented in sources straight from that time, mm -hmm. which I wish it was the case for every female patriot that we had, but not always. And again, that length of time for a woman who was probably sitting at the top tier of New York society mm -hmm. at, that, at that time. Absolutely. So you can imagine if she wasn't a woman of, I guess, society, as they, they would have called it, mm -hmm. she would have been lucky if she had ever left that prison again. Exactly. Yeah. So, like always, we have our family, our friends, our watchers ask questions. And we do have one question from Shelly Murphy. And she actually, there are two questions from Shelly. And Shelly said, is there a number of um, how many women patriots there are and how many might be women of color? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, and unfortunately, the answer is a little bit more convoluted. Yeah, of course. So our <laughs> database doesn't have a way of tracking whether a patriot is female or whether they are of color or not because it's sort of like we don't care we don't what do color that. you yeah, were so long as you participated in some capacity so i can give you a rough estimate for how many female patriots we mm -hmm. have but in terms of how many are of color unfortunately i would not be able to provide an answer right. to that yeah. um and sort of I could tell you right now, we have over 300 female patriots. Is it that many? So this is the caveat to this, though. <laughs> so what I did, because there's no real way of searching for it, I just started plugging in by first name. So I put in like Elizabeth, Hannah, Abigail, Sarah, Margaret, sort of the common names that you would have for women during mm -hmm. that time. And I came up with a total of 384 female patriots. What? However... Some of these women might not have been looked at in a hundred years. So whether or not that service is something that we yeah. can corroborate right. in an acceptable source would mean that yes, they're in the system, but they might not be a patriot, patriot. so to speak. Right. Got it. So um, in particular, we would have female ancestors that were established with service where, you know, it was 1910 and someone submitted their application and they wrote, she was a nurse at Valley Forge. But we might not have any way of corroborating that in one of our acceptable sources. Mm -hmm. So we might not, while it might have been accepted in 1910 and no one's looked at it since then, when we get that new application, that's when we look at it again and we go, oh boy, like I have no way of proving this. So we have to close that line. So it depends. I did, you know, there was a decent amount of those female patriots who were coded for maybe lineage or coded for service. Um, so. Actually, using that as an example, say, so you know, the family lore is, oh, five, you know, seven, eight times great grandmama was, was a nurse mm -hmm. at a battle. Mm -hmm. Is there a place where battle records, I mean, I know, Revolutionary War, colonial period, did they really have time with the, you know, ink and a quill to actually sure. write down every little thing that was going on? But is there kind of, where would be the best, most likeliest place to look for that kind of information? Orders and this happened, or, you know, this is my staff at this particular camp. Yeah, so that's where you have to get a little creative. Um, so if you're lucky, you might be able to find a journal or an official recording of, you know, the commanding officer in a particular camp mm -hmm. who might have, you know, might be a receipt of payment for two pounds to Susanna Smith for washing laundry, something like that. If we could find something in like the captain's notes or commanding officer's notes that reference a service performed by a woman, then that's something that we can corroborate. Okay. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the sources, or at least a lot of the sources that we've been given for service, for things like being a nurse, they're usually not from acceptable sources. Um, what un is kind of unfortunate is you get a lot of these claims, you know, great eighth grade grandma was a nurse at Valley Forge, um, and that's coming from the family genealogy. But unfortunately, we don't take family genealogies as proof of service, usually because they're written significantly later and it's just family lore passed down. We're not able to actually corroborate that service in an acceptable source. Wow. So, so is it harder? 
I mean, Gene, it, it's harder to prove women patriots than it yeah. is. Because I was so, I mean, I, I have to admit, as, as I'm doing my part, and I'm looking, I'm like, this is a female. This is crazy. Like, because, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, okay, this is a lady that I'm putting in. How in the world did they get to this point? And I, I, I just never, I never thought of a female patriot until I got to the DAR. Mm -hmm. So when Brian actually brought up, well, let's see if we can talk about, since we're doing Women His Women's History Month, let's see if we can find someone to talk about female patriots. Okay, well, I work at the DAR. Let's let's do that. Mm -hmm. And then for you to come and say, oh, yeah, I have the perfect person. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. So it was, it was really shocking to me to learn that there, that there were female. And then you're giving me this crazy number of 300, even though I understand yeah. what you're saying, yeah. you know, that some of them we can't corroborate. We, we, I get it. Mm -hmm. But just the fact that that number is even in there, that's... Sure. Well, because you say that, before I phoned you and we had the conversation, I was even trying to find if you know, a reputable historian had actually written a book about women, and the, women who fought or supported the American Revolution. It's, there really isn't... There isn't. There really isn't that much written about them and the ones that do write about the ones that we kind of already know about like mm -hmm. Betsy Ross um, Martha Custis you know Martha Mark, Mark Dandridge Custis, Custis Washington yeah. Dolly Madison so the women kind of like Black History Month yeah they stay on a certain the same it's, they recycle the, the same people mm -hmm. I'm so sick of that so that's <laughs> you know that's why we that's why we're doing what we're doing we don't want to recycle the same people mm -hmm. we want we want new people and that's why I was so glad you were able to not only come with a name but come with other names and give us an overall story on this woman like she her she should be told yeah. this is somebody who really should have been talked about in mm. history, because first and foremost, she was a, excuse my French, she was a badass. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she was a straight badass. She did yeah. her thing, and, mm. and no one knew that she was doing her thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate you really yeah. coming with that story. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, I mean, I have to give total respect to anyone, regardless right. of gender, age, or anything. You've got a British man of war right. parked yep. outside your house. And you're standing there. And it's like, yeah, bring it. Just, yeah, just, bring just it. like, it's not going to hit the same spot <laughs> twice. I'm good. I'm chilling. Like, yeah, mad respect to that right yeah. there. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard of the publication, um, The Wives of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence. No, no, I haven't. So that one has a biography on Elizabeth Lewis in there. So I did pull a few things from that. But that might be one to check if you're looking for the okay. stories of the female figures sort of behind the men who you could make the argument they are supporting the mm -hmm. war, you know, the cause of independence because they're supporting their husbands. They're taking care of the house. They can have patriotic sentiment in their own right. What's the name of that magazine again, just for people who... So this is a book. It's The Wives okay. of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence. Got I mean, it. I had it written the exact title in here. I'm just, just in case people didn't catch that the first it's time around. Wives of the Signers. That's Excellent. The official wives of the signers, and then I think it's biographies of prominent females, something, something, something. Yeah, that subtitle that just yeah. runs, runs <laughs> exactly. <down>. So wives <laughs> of the signers. That's the easy so, one to remember. So we have another question from Martine Brennan. She's from Ireland. This is actually one of our cousins, okay. and um, she says, "Do any of the records give the name of the man who is reputed to have smuggled clothes into Elizabeth in jail?" She said, I've only seen him described as a black servant and a Catholic. Um, so unfortunately, none of the sources that I've come across have given him a name. Oh, wow. But I didn't even know that much. See, I have heard I that, same, that same story, that he was Catholic. There was, in her granddaughter, great-granddaughter's biography, she does say that this gentleman was Catholic and, I guess, fell ill shortly after Elizabeth's release from prison. And he apparently, um, because they were still in New York City, so he was helping take care of her. And then when he was dying, there was no Catholic priest to be had in New York City. 
So Elizabeth sort of worked her magic and found one in Philadelphia that could be smuggled into New York City wow. to read him his last rites. Once again, this is lore. This is coming from her great-granddaughter's book, so I'm, I always have to feel like I have to add that caveat. You know, this is something, this is published in 1877. It's coming way after the fact. But that's, what the, that's how the story goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, that's all the information that I have on him. Um, wow. Interrupt it and now end it. See, a documentarian or a filmmaker needs to go out, to get out there and improve that, because that would be a fascinating story. I yeah. mean, Wow. I mean, I mean, her story is fascinating enough. And it's so... You add that to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if going through the records of her husband's estate when he died might be able to pinpoint, help you pinpoint the name of someone if this, you know, I believe he died shortly thereafter, but maybe if a family member was mentioned in the estate records um, of... You know, I'll be honest, I don't know if he was an enslaved person or if he was a hired servant. Um, I just don't have that information. Well, I'm kind of circulating in my head that there wasn't a Catholic priest in the entirety of New York City. Out, you know, to, to so, and that's what I think is that's, a little strange. yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> what? Like it's not one, not one. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like New York only had a couple of hundred people in it. I mean, New York was <laughs> it, ha, had already been under the yeah. Dutch a thriving, a yes. thriving colony. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, so, not one. That's why I say, who knows if this is a hundred percent accurate? <laughs> but that's what the story. That's how the story goes: is that yeah. she had a priest smuggled through the lines from Philadelphia <laughs> to read in his last rites. Um, Afiba, they're saying that the video has paused and it's no sound. Oh, yeah, that's why I'm getting live video interrupted. But we're still going out live on, um... On the other one. Mm-hmm. So if you're watching us, watching us on Listen Vision Live, if you can just hold on for just a minute. Yeah, we're having slight difficulty. I will put a comment saying... That... Um, but, wow, that, wow. She is awesome. Like yeah. I am so. She's a good. She's a good figure to focus on. It's so. It's so wonderful when you find somebody when you're doing your research on your family and you end up finding someone who is just like this awesome mm-hmm. person and you're like, yeah, that's my family. Yeah, that's my girl. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you like that's right? my like, girl. She belongs she... to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a part of her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I, my ancestry is in predominantly Connecticut and, and New York, so I, on my father's side, I wish I had someone like this. I'm sure you got somebody. Maybe somebody hiding somewhere, but that's, yeah. So you became a member just yes. recently. Mm-hmm. October of last year. Yeah, yeah, so how did that feel to become a DAR member? It felt great, because um, I joined on my father's line, obviously, because my mother's North African, so there's never going to be any line through her side for the DAR's purposes. But um, So it was, it was fun, because I joined through my um, biological grandmother, who died a long time before I was born, whose name is also Claire. Mm-hmm. Um, so... She was a Bates, and so I joined through her great 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 grandfather Phineas Bates, who I just love that name, like yeah. Phineas. What a great first name! <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so it was really fun, and actually, through that line, I found several other possible Patriot connections. So eventually, I will get around to submitting a couple supplementals. Wow, um, but yeah. It's, it's, I like it. Okay, so can you explain, since we're on that, explain what supplementals do for someone. Right. So, obviously, when you're a first-time applicant, you submit that application, you become a member, you get your national number, cool beans. So, sort of like what I was just saying is you might, in your research, have found several other ancestors or patriots in our system that you're also descended from. So, you say, well, hey... I also want to join through that guy. So you basically submit another application, except you're already in the system. Um, And you can submit, there is currently no limit for how many supplemental applications you can submit at once. We did have one that was submitted, um, I believe it was submitted over a year ago, and they're currently working on it now. 50 supplemental applications all at once. Do you, were you here yeah. when that one came in the bill? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I ran. Yep, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot. And was a lot. Uh, the assistant director of supplementals is the one who's currently working on that one. Because, 
Yeah, forest. Okay. Um, because 50 all at once is, is, is quite time consuming God to go through that. Mm-hmm. God bless you. So, um, so those are supplemental applications and it's for, um, it's really just so you can sort of document and honor your additional patriots that you've identified. So. Okay. Yeah. So as an African-American, how hard is it for African-Americans to prove their patriotism, you know, their ancestors through that? Um, I would say it can be more difficult. Sometimes it's just as easy as anyone else. It just depends on your personal family and the documentation available. Okay. Um, it obviously when you're dealing with people who were enslaved it is significantly more complicated um so in some of those cases dna might be useful to help you yes because dar does use dna we do take um dna uh and it's one of those things that you know you would have to submit that dna in conjunction with other records and what we call an analysis which is sort of like a way of explaining how you're using multiple document, you know, multiple documents to come to one conclusion. Mm -hmm. So I remember one that I had where um, the way that they had proved their link because they were descended from, uh, it was this guy who had owned several slaves and they were descended from one of the slaves who were biological children, natural children of mm -hmm. this man. We had no one record that did indicate that they were his children, but what we were able to do is that in the inventory of his estate, um, this was in Tennessee and I think in the 1840s, in the inventory of his estate, um, several of these men were listed as brothers. You know, I can't remember their names off the top of my head. But what we were able to do was then trace the land that had been given to the um, legal heirs of this gentleman through his probate records and then see that that land had splintered off and gone to these three men who were listed as brothers in the inventory of that general estate. Um, and so it was sort of like then from the death certificates of their children, they were naming, you know, naming so-and-so as their mother, which corroborated with what so-and-so was listing. And so it was a very complicated sort of web of how we were able to establish that these men were actually getting the land that it was originally distributed to the legal heirs of this guy in his probate records. And we're seeing that the land changed hands and that they were listing each other as cousins in various records. And so it all kind of tied in together. Wow. So it, it's, it can be very complicated and convoluted. Um, so that's why sometimes DNA does come in handy if you're able to pair that with other documentation. Um, other times there are court records that might say, you know, that might um, acknowledge a, a illegitimate child as a naturalized child of so-and-so and that's something that you can use it just it depends on the family and the area that you're researching and the time period and and definitely for colonial Virginia and North Carolina those bastardy bonds can be a real lifesaver mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember if Maryland had them I've read accounts where people were whipped for having natural children, mm -hmm. but I don't know if they actually had, I don't know if the, the father of the natural child had mm -hmm. to pay a, pay a bond, as it were. Off the top of my head for Maryland, I don't know, but that would absolutely be something to search in like the family search catalog to see if they have that stuff digitized. So how does the DNA portion work? How do you guys use the DNA? So I will just straight up say I am not an expert in the DNA. That's we do Maryland. have yes, Maryland. We do have someone we'll have at the DAR who we'll pull Maryland. Yeah, <laughs> she could absolutely answer this question perfectly. So I will do my best. But usually DNA, when you're talking about something mid lineage, usually has to accompany other documentation to corroborate it. So, um, for example, if you're trying to prove, you know, that your great 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 grandfather was the son of John Smith and Mary Smith, right? Um, and you take, you know, the ancestry DNA test, and it says that your fifth cousins with someone who also has a family tree that shows that they're descended from this guy, that right there is not going to be sufficient. So you might be able to use that DNA in conjunction with, with documents, documentation like court records to show that, like, I'm just 
kind of spitballing here, but let's say we know from already previously verified lineages of the DAR that John and Mary Smith had a son, Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. And we have records that show these are the five children of Ezekiel, and then your DNA connects you to someone who's already proven that they're one of the... So that's sort of is how it can work together. Okay. Um, so it usually is accompanied by other documentation. It's slightly different if you're doing just like a paternity test, you know? Okay. Because obviously we have a lot of applicants who are adopted or might not know their biological parents. So. Because yeah. that's the issue that I have with the SAR, but that we have in general, is that Donnie and I can actually place our mulatto, enslaved mulatto ancestors with the father mm -hmm. who's their enslaver mm -hmm. through deeds and wills and probate records, letters, journals, farm books, whatever All you know, it. whatever you want yeah. to call it. But because they were that person's dirty little secret, right. there's nothing to say, oh, you know, hooray, the ninth of March, you know, seventeen seventy seven, my she son my son Joshua, my daughter Emma was born. Mm -hmm. Right. We ain't gonna get that. Right. <laughs> and and that's what why the DAR has what we call an analysis, because then you can submit all of those deeds and court records and whatever, and an explanation of, in this record it says this, in this record it says this, when you yeah. put these two together it says this. And that, if, if it all adds up and it makes sense and it accounts for any conflicting information, mm -hmm. we just look at it and we take it to someone and they sign it and then we go, okay, and we're done. And we just move right along because... Wow. Okay. Although, us, to be fair, someone on the, the Sons of the American Revolutionary War Facebook page did point out, he's like, well, you can put them in the household and you know that you share DNA, that you have a DNA relation, but you can't prove that it was that man and not his brothers. Sure kind of a thing. Right. I'm like, well, if all the brothers served in the American Revolution, then no matter which one it is, right. we're covered. Right. <laughs> but, you got you know, someone. Yeah, yeah. You got someone. But, you know, they, they, do, they do have a valid point on that one. That's yeah. right. But that's where we're really good is we can actually get them in that household mm -hmm. and then try our best to prove, prove the paternity. Yeah, we, mm -hmm. we, we put them in there. We get them in the household. Yeah. It's just proving the, how they're there and why they're there. And then, you know, you have wording that kind of leads to the fact that this is probably that person's child but it's not a, it might not be enough right to to that or it's trying to explain that to someone who's really not familiar with slave with slave lingo slave terminology right because again you know we have an ancestor who in three different wills down three because he lived a very long time he Kept having to write him and kept within the family, but they kept making special provisions for him. Yeah, mm -hmm. not necessarily for the other ones. Or for kids. her, because we her. have one that okay. does it for her. Like she was totally, she was literally pushed to the side. Mm -hmm. Everything that was done for her was totally different for what they did for the other group of enslaved people that they did, like during the labor contracts. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were saying some really harsh things to those particular people during those labor contracts. But then when they got to her, I, they didn't do that. Like for this one, they say, yeah, if your child was is is wrong, I'm going to beat him. You know, or if you, you're going to do this, this, and the third, and this is all that you're going to get. But then when they came to her, yeah, I'm going to give you $600, and you're going to take care of your kids, and I'm going to make sure your roof is over your head, and I'm going to do that. You know, it was nicer for her mm -hmm. than it was for that one. So you can tell that, okay, this is somebody that you that means something to you, yeah. whereas these people don't really you don't really care about. Right. So you got to know that. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's yeah. Mm -hmm. it's so things. in view of wrapping this one up, um, if you think you have a female ancestor that was involved in the American Revolution, would you advise visit because the DAR you can search on the DAR site for free is that correct you yes. don't have to have membership yes so if you want to see if you know if you've identified a possible female ancestor and you want to see if they're already established in our system you would go to www.dar.org yep. there will be a button that says GRS at the top of the page that's our genealogical research system um, it's comprised of several different databases, and you would search in the Ancestor database to see if they've already been established in the okay. system. And lately I've been seeing more and more often there's a message that comes up on some people, and I think it's all red text, where I think the DAR is going back over this older 
Or the, if a conflict arises, or it actually looks as though you guys are going over your older records, to say, well, we're not so sure about this anymore. Yes, so we call that coding an ancestor. Mm -hmm. um, so that usually happens when new documentation is submitted or a new application, you know, maybe yeah. it's someone we haven't looked at in 40 years. And suddenly we have to look at everything with fresh eyes. So what's really important when you come across something like that is to pay attention to the specific code at the top in red because that will identify what the issue is. And then there's comments underneath that'll tell you specifically what the problem is. Because if you have a code, the really common ones are FAMPCS, which stands for Future Applicants Must Prove Correct Service. Okay. That means that there's a problem with the service attributed to that particular ancestor. And the specific description of that problem will be in the comments below. It might say no proof of this service or something like that. Um, then you'll have the lineage codes, which that will always be an FAMP slash C code. Future applicants must prove correct lineage is what okay. that stands for. And then it'll those same comments, just a little bit further below, will explain whether this is something that we're questioning and we're not sure if this is right or not, so we might need you to submit more proof, or we've either determined, you know, we've determined oh, this is 100% wrong, sorry. And I'm really, really sorry. I'm responsible for one of them, one of the William Holloways. In my own research of him and really going through things and going going to archives, looking at the records, going, mm -hmm. yeah, that William Holloway is not the father of yeah. that Reuben Holloway. Yeah. Sorry, DAR. <laughs> and that, no, it's good that you, someone's got to catch it, right? Because um, we just, we do the best that we can with the documentation that's submitted. Which is all you can do. Because right. they're not your ancestors. Exactly. You're putting information about someone else's. Yeah, and sometimes someone will submit something and we look at it and we go, oh yeah, this makes sense. He is the son of this guy. We're good to go. And then five years later, someone turns up and it's like, actually, no, he's the son of his brother. Yeah. And here's all the proof. And we go, oh, okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> So thank you so much yes, for joining please. us today. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing, me. sharing the history of Elizabeth. Because yes. that's, you know, when I was reading it and it, I, the word prison popped up and I'm thinking, well, prison, prison? Was it kind <laughs> of like a posh prison being, yeah. you know, housed with a British general? Nah, she, no. she, she, she did the full deal. She did real stuff. So she all credit to you, Elizabeth. Yes. All credit to your, your, to your descendants. Mm -hmm. Definitely a woman of history. Yeah. that needed to be spoken. Her name needed to be said. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank this you guys awesome. for joining us. Sorry about the little technical snafu. The full video will be up either later today or I promise first thing tomorrow morning. Yes, yes. And um, so next week we're going to talk with Maya Millett. Maya is um, giving us stories of black women journalists in in history, right? Yes. Yes. And heroines. That's what she calls them. Heroines of history. Black women journalists. So it's going to be really nice to talk with her and learn about some women journalists that we've never heard of before. Um, so I'm Donya. I'm Brian. And thank you guys for watching us today. And we look forward to talking with you next Sunday. See you next week.